The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Visit us this morning. I want to thank you for the chance to gather and to worship here and with your church spread across the globe. Would you now come and give life to your word? Would you cause it to run amongst us? Change us? I know you are here. I pray that you would be uniquely here, here in power. And give life to the scriptures, I pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to be blind and then to see. He'd been spiritually blind for his entire very religious life. And then one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him and struck him physically blind. And then a few days after that, he healed both his physical and his spiritual blindness The scales came off and Paul could see. Being given sight changed Paul's life forever. He was never the same again. And so he wants for you and I and every Christian to be able to see. In our passage this morning, Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 19 Paul prays to the God who can do something about our spiritual vision. He prays, open their eyes, Lord. And by his example, not by any command here, there's no command, but by his example, he issues to us a similar call to prayer. The main point that we are to take out of this passage, I'm convinced, pray, pray, pray so that you can see, so that you can walk. Be constant in prayer for the scales on your eyes to fall off and for your vision to be kept clear. Not physically, of course. Spiritually. Brothers and sisters, you need to see. You need to see so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and His calling on you. And so Paul cries out to you. He calls to you. Pray, pray, pray. There's earnestness in this. So that you can see. So that you can walk. This passage makes plain, I think, that there's a connection between prayer, seeing, spiritually speaking, and walking in a worthy manner. Remember, worthy walking is where this letter is going. That's where we're going in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Worthy walking, that is a life that maximally honors God in everything that it does. Not a life that is worthy to be saved. That's impossible. None of us ever were or ever will be worthy to be saved. Not that kind of worthy but instead a worthy life that matches up with the fact that those of us who are in Christ have been saved by grace. A worthy life is a life not lived beneath who we are, but a life lived as we are. Children, adopted heirs. We have a being that God has made for us. We are His children. We have a relationship with Him. This kind of worthy life is where we're going towards in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Life that fits with who we are. Now what the details of that are, 
how that looks exactly, we're going to hold off until we get to those chapters. But what's important for this morning is to see that there is a connection between prayer, seeing, and that worthy walking. We're going to look at that connection in three parts. I've put them as three questions this morning to help us kind of hear them and help with my structure. They're not questions in the text, but they're parts or questions here. The first one, how does praying connect to seeing? The second one, what are we to see exactly? And the third one then, how does seeing then connect to walking? That's our three parts or three questions this morning. How does praying get to seeing? What are we supposed to see? And then how does seeing connect to walking? That's what we're going to look at. And by the end, I've been praying that you'll be gripped, that you need to pray, 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 so that you can see, so that you can walk. Now remember our context here, verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. We've been looking at that in the past, and they're all it's all one great big long introductory sentence of praise. God is to be blessed, to be praised, verse 3, because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's blessed them and us spiritually with every spiritual blessing. They and we don't lack anything. The next verses, up to our passage this morning, lay out and elaborate on some of the more significant of those blessings. They deal primarily with our salvation, how it came to be that we were included in Christ, claimed by Him as His special possession, His lot, His portion. Remember that, verse 11. In verses 13 and 14 then, the last sermon we preached in Ephesians, we saw how it was that the Ephesians too had come to believe they, they too had been sealed by the Spirit. So Paul's talking about how God fashioned a people for himself and he included those Ephesians into it. And because of that, they bore the mark that they were saved. And that leads Paul to turn the corner here in our text this morning from praise about and to God to prayer to God. This is a recounting of a prayer We'll be focusing on verses 15 to 19, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 to kind of lead up to it. So Ephesians 1, 13 to 19, reads, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might. Our first question, the first part of this connection between prayer, seeing, and walking, how does praying connect to seeing? work towards this starting in verse 15. 
For this reason, referring back to the fact that he, he's heard a report that the Ephesians have also been saved and have been included in. So it's referring back to all those verses, especially 13 and 14. And it's captured again that next little phrase, because I heard about your faith and your love. For this reason, he's been praying in thanks, ceaselessly giving thanks for them. Salvation is of the Lord. Paul had heard they'd been saved, so he's talking to the Lord about them. Thank you for saving them. Thank you, God, for growing your family. Thank you for blessing these Ephesians too with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Lord, I'm praising you because all of those things in 3 to 14, you've rolled them on to those who've been saved. And they are blessed, blessed, blessed. Thank you for doing that, God. That's his prayer of thanksgiving. And he prays like this repeatedly, habitually, ever since he heard of their faith and their love. And as he thanks God for his work in his life, he also naturally, habitually, Again, the grammar is clear here that he prays, prays, prays. He habitually rolls right over into petition. But what do you ask for, for people who already have everything? He just got done saying that they have every spiritual blessing. What more do they need? Maybe he'll move to physical blessings. Maybe he'll pray for more health and wealth and protection from persecution. It's often the stuff that dominates our kind of prayers. So maybe that's what Paul will pray. No, in fact... That's not what's on his mind. Instead, he prays repeatedly, consistently, habitually. Ever since he's heard about their salvation, he prays that they might see. That's where we're going here this morning. End of verse 16. Remembering you in my prayers, here's what he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you something. Before we get to that something, I'm going to pause here because I need to deal with something, I think. Paul's dealing with, he's using an assumption. A thing that he and all true Christians, that the New Testament assumes, but might not be obvious to everyone here. When Paul says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not implying that there is God and someone else who's not God, namely Jesus. He's not doing that. The New Testament is extremely clear. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's John 1.1. 1, 1. The Greek text is actually even more emphatic. It reads literally, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. God was the Word. It puts a little more emphasis on that. It's really clear. The New Testament is clear. Jesus always was from eternity past is and always will be fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So the New Testament teaches. But in order to keep clear which person of the one Trinity, one triune God is doing what, the New Testament often uses some shorthand language to describe the different persons. God the Father is often called simply God, as here. God the Son is often called the Lord, and God the Spirit is often called the Spirit. So, don't let that confuse you. I want to point that out because it is extremely important. Paul uses this language a lot here, and he is not thinking that Jesus is not God. He's just trying to keep straight who he's talking to and who he's talking about. 
So if you want to ask some more about that, you can come to the sermon discussions afterwards in the fellowship hall. But for what's for right here, right now, we just want to point out that he's talking to God the Father. He's praying to him in thanks. He's petitioning him. And he's asking them for something that these fully blessed believers still yet need. Back to verse 17 now. He prays, Oh, Father, I pray, pray, pray that you would give to your children the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of, of him. Knowledge of you. It's in verse 17 there. Praise God. Give them the spirit that is, I think, the Holy Spirit. I think it should be capital S, as some of your translations say. Now, it could be that he's talking about just our personal spirit, the small s. It could be that he's talking about my human spirit of wisdom, that he would make me wise in my spirit. That would make sense. It's the next part about the spirit of revelation that makes me think we're talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm no revealer. I receive revelation. So if God is going to give the spirit of revelation, I think he's giving the Holy Spirit here. Either way, it's very similar to what we saw back up in the first section in verse 8, where God in grace lavished on us wisdom and insight so we'd know the mystery. The Spirit is the means that God gives us grace so that we can know. Here it's the same thing, but a slightly different end. It's not about knowing the mystery. Here, you, you notice it says, God given the Spirit of wisdom revelation in the knowledge of you. The end goal here is that we would know Him. Take your Spirit, Lord, the same Spirit that you have sealed them with. Take and put Him to work in their hearts, wisely revealing yourself. Wisdom revelation in the knowledge of Him. So the prayer is, make yourself known to them by the Spirit's work in them. That's what He's praying. God, there are 12 stunning verses here that I just wrote down. They're true of them. Would you help them to see it? See that next phrase? Enlighten the eyes of their hearts. Help them to see it, Lord. Your heart has eyes. The inside you, the spiritual you, can see or not. And Paul prays continually for this because the default position in us is not. He prays without ceasing for our sight because we lapse without ceasing into blindness. A couple of weeks ago we discussed in verses 8 to 10 how we have a hard time with perspective. We can see things up here close, but we have a hard time seeing the things that are some distance from us. We have a hard time really seeing and knowing how God is going to one day bring all things to heal under Christ things in heaven and on earth united together. That's still to come, and we have a hard time seeing it and trusting it. Well, here we find that it's even worse than that, actually. We have a pretty hard time seeing the stuff that's right up here, that's really right here, present, and equally real. Most of us can see current physical reality with our physical eyes, if they still work. But we oh so often fail to see the equally real spiritual realities right now. These blessings are true now. God is for us now. Yes, yes to come, much to come yet. But there are things now that we so often cannot see. And so Paul prays, enlighten the eyes of their hearts, please. We can go to a physical doctor. We can go to a hospital or a clinic. 
We can they can operate on our eyes and we fix our nerves and we fashion some glasses for us. Any number of things we can do to help us see physically. That's the means towards physical sight. God's blessed us in that way, and we should use them if we can't physically see. But prayer is connected to seeing. This is the first question, the first step here. Because no one but God has power over spiritual sight. It's in his hands. So Paul prays, God help them see, open the eyes of their hearts. You see that? The phrase, the the idea, God give them this, is clear implication that it's God's to give and that we need it. That's why we pray for sight, because God can give it and because we need it. And so you should pray for it. You should pray, yes, you should pray for physical things and physical needs, but you should pray for the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened because you need to see. We haven't talked yet about what you need to see. That's coming. But prayer is connected to seeing as the means to an end. God commonly works through what are known as the three ordinary means. Prayer, the Scripture, and fellowship. And here Paul's grabbed onto one of them, prayer, and says, he's going to answer this prayer. He'll enlighten the eyes of your hearts if you ask Him. Pray, please. Ask Him to take off the scales on your eyes. To illumine your heart and help you to see this stuff that's true of you right now, right here. To see how God feels about you. What He's done for you. To grasp the being that is now real for you. Enlighten me, Lord. Help me to see but what in particular are we supposed to see? That's the second question. And this is the centerpiece of this connected thought. What do we need to see? Pick up in the middle of verse 18. When the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. The purpose here, it's a goal coming up here. That, you see that word there? Why do we need enlightened eyes? That you may know. And there are three things here. And if you're looking at the ESV or maybe the NAS text, You have the word what in there three times. See those in there? What do we need to know? What is the hope? What is the riches? In verse 19, what is the power? Looking at the NIV, do you see that in there? Those three things we need to know, need to see the hope of His calling, the riches of His great inheritance, and His immeasurable power. Now notice when he switches from talking about eyes to knowing, that he kind of switches metaphors here. It means the same thing, though. He's talking about comprehending something, getting it. So I'm going to use those words interchangeably myself. What do we need to see? The hope. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. If you're in Christ, you got there by believing the gospel. And you believe the gospel because he called you. The call right here is not a, it's not a call to a vocation or to a particular ministry or to a particular city to live in. We often use that word today in in that regard. Say, God called me to this or God called me to that. But that's usually not the way the New Testament uses it. Here, as well as in 4.1 and 4.4, the call of God is gospel in salvation oriented. You were one of his sheep. You knew his voice. He called you, you came, you were placed in Christ and saved 
And when that happened, you received an astounding inheritance. You were blessed, verse 3. And that inheritance, all those blessings, that is the hope attached to this calling. That's what he's talking about here. It is the content of the inheritance promised to you, guaranteed to you. It is the hope held out in the gospel, the settled facts of God's saving work applied to each one of us, guaranteed, in fact, by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God applied it to you when he called you. It is the saving, sanctifying, and future glorifying work of God on your behalf. It is things like intimacy with God. Now, I say that phrase a lot, but can you even imagine what that means? Intimacy with God, perfect fellowship and communion with Him. I mean, sometimes right now, sometimes right now I'll be reading my Bible, I'll be praying, and I'll experience kind of a, ah, He's there, and I'm connected to Him. And then a half hour later, it's gone, kind of like a mist, and I just, I'm, I'm trying to find it again, but I can't. Three days later, it comes back. And I'm there with it again. That intimacy. I don't know how else to describe that, but I experience that. I hope you do too. A time is coming when that will be life. Always. We can have it now. We can know it now. But it is coming yet. That should give us hope. That's part of our hope. Peace for our soul. We're no longer at war with God. Forgiveness, love, acceptance, community. We're relational beings and we have been put into a community that is growing now but will be so much more then. These are elements of the hope, the inheritance that God has given us. And it is immense. It is wide and long and high and deep. And I could spend a really long time laying out this and that and the other that's part of it. But you know what? I don't know the half of it myself. I struggle with comprehending it. I know some about God, and so I know that what God gives would be good if I could fully understand it, but I can't. I can't even really fully understand what my life would have been like if He'd not called me, what my eternal destiny would have been like if He hadn't called me. I can't comprehend that, and I never will. Can you? Can you fully imagine? Your life has been changed. He called you. He's blessed you. You have a great hope. It's hard to grasp that for me. And maybe, because it's a little hard to grasp, or because it's a little vague, or maybe because it's kind of old hat sometimes, and leads to a yawn, maybe because of one of those things, maybe for some other reason, it's really easy to kind of put this hope aside and leave it in our personal memorabilia box. You know, the box that has your high school letterman jacket in it. Kids kids' pictures from when they were little. If you're younger, I don't know if kids had these things. Maybe it would be like pictures of last year's prom or something. The box that has stuff in it that's genuinely important to you. You don't want to abandon it or part from it, that's for sure. But it's also equally sure that you can leave that stuff in that box on the top shelf, in the closet, in the guest room for years and never look at it. And life just goes on. We run a danger of doing that with this hope. And that would be too bad. 
Because God means for this objective reality of the hope of His calling, the hoped for things, the inheritance, the great blessings that He has given us, He means for those objective items right there in that hope to lead in our lives to the subjective emotion of strong and steady hope. The hoped for things are supposed to lead to hope. He means to say, if you can see this hope, then you will have hope. If you can see the greatness of what is coming and the greatness of what is already here, then you will live day by day filled with driving hope. Hope that will drive you away from sin and temptation and despair and will drive you to faith and dependence on me. We addressed this two weeks ago when we were talking about the effect that the massive a down payment or the earnest payment that God's Spirit is supposed to have in us? Remember that phrase about fighting fire with fire? This hope is supposed to be fire that we use to fight off the false hopes that sin offers. That's how sin works for us now. Sin makes offers to us, promises, hopes that are lies. And we don't most effectively fight them by saying no. We most effectively fight them by saying, you got to be kidding me. Look at this hope. This hope right here is meant to be front and center in our lives and to dominate our thinking so that we can fight off that stuff. God, help us to see this hope. You see why you should pray for it? Second, we need to see the riches of God's inheritance. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what are the riches of His inheritance, His glorious inheritance in the saints. It's easy to think that what's being talked about right here is our inheritance, the inheritance that we receive. But as we just saw, that's actually part of the hope. Text makes clear here that it's His inheritance. This is God's inheritance. We talked about this before in verse 11 and in part of verse 14. This is God's heritage, His portion, His lot, that which God has obtained. And we need to see the riches of how glorious that inheritance is. It is rich. Wealth, maybe might be another word to put there. It is glorious and it is His. If you ask God, God, where's your inheritance? Maybe like you ask a wealthy man or woman, where's, where's all your inheritance that you're going to pass on to your kids? You might say, in the stock market. My money's in the market. I think that's what's going on here with this phrase. You ask God, God, where's your inheritance? In my people. In the saints. Something like that's going on here. He looks at us and he highly, highly esteems us. He declares us to be of great value. And I need to take care right here because there's a tension. We are definitely, we are certainly the highest creation. We are image bearers. And so all of us, everybody on the planet, are in a sense special. But what's being talked about here and what I'm talking about right now, this high, high valuing that God has for us is not because we are just created, but because He has decided to value us and has paid for us, bought us, redeemed us with an incredible price, God the Son. He loved us with a great love and He is jealous for us compared to all other people, His church, His people. He is jealous for us, biased in our favor 
eager to defend and forgive us, sworn to keep us and never cast us out. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We, the people of God, are God's pride and joy. A glorious bride prepared for the great Son of Man. That's what He thinks about us. Now that is likely not new information, but it is remarkably hard to really believe that. To consistently see it. See it about yourself and about everybody else in the church. Paul's, you know, Paul's gonna again pray in chapter 3, and he's gonna ask, remarkably, he's going to ask for God to give the saints strength so that they can understand his love for them. You need strength to know this love, Paul, Paul prays. It's hard to remember it. It's hard to really see it. Now this morning, I'm gonna leave the part about seeing, um, seeing God's love for you. And instead, I'm going to move on to talking about you seeing God's love for the rest of us. Consider this. In your presence, I might, I might sinfully slander someone that I knew to be your enemy. Someone you knew, I knew you didn't like, I might slander that person in your presence. Maybe I'd expect you to kind of agree with me or to join in and and it would, you know, draw us closer together as we put this person down or whatever. But I don't think I would ever slander your children in your presence. Because I would kind of expect that to lead to a little problem in our relationship. But we slander God's children in God's presence all the time. And we hardly even think about it. We rarely see how fiercely He loves them. You know who them is. Them are the people who disagree with me. Them are those Calvinists or those dispensationalists or those reformed people or those charismatics or those cessationists, those old earth people, those young earth people, those people who think women should be pastors and those people who think they shouldn't. That's who them is. And we rarely see how fiercely he loves them and how angered he is when they are attacked even by another one of his children. Realizing this, seeing it and knowing it would revolutionize life in the church. It would end the pursuit of our own agendas. It would change our tones and our attitudes towards one another. The amount of blood spilled in our halls by our lips is deplorable. It grieves Him. He watches us kill His children. He highly regards His children. He passionately cares for His church. Greatly values this glorious inheritance that He spent the Son's blood to acquire. If we could just see how earnestly He strives to build it up and to refine it and create a loving, Christ-like community. If we could see that, know it, we would walk differently. I'm convinced. God, help us to see Your perspective on how richly you value your inheritance, how glorious you see it. You need to pray for that. You need to pray for sight to see that. How passionately he loves collectively and individually his people. We need to see the hope 
the rich glory of his inheritance, and third, his great power, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. God is immeasurably powerful. Probably already knew that. But Paul seems to think that we might not really know that. So he prays that God would give us the ability to see it. He's almost amusingly redundant in this section. He describes God's power as immeasurably great. It can't be measured. And then he sort of does. He says, it compares to the working of his great might that he displayed in raising Christ from the dead. That last part of verse 19 could actually literally be translated according to the power of the power of his power. According to the power of the power of his power, he has immeasurably great power towards us who believe. God is powerful and has marshaled all of that power and is putting it to work on our behalf. And while that's not exactly news, I find, as I look at my life, I find that I'm still, remarkably, I'm still prone to worry. I'm still prone to fight for my rights, try to defend myself and take care of myself. I'm still prone to get angry when I get thwarted, when my will doesn't get done. I'm still kind of like that. I'm still prone to assuming the position of being my own uh, protector and provider. Are you in that boat with me at all? I think you are. And when I and, and you and we live like that, we are displaying that we don't really get it. That he has power that is according to the power of the power of his power. And it's for us. If I got it, if I saw it, I would do my assigned work at peace, knowing that I work, but that a sovereign God is ordering my steps according to his immense power. I would not despair when I fail, when life spins out of my control, as it frequently does, because I would see him as a steady rock, full of power for me. See what I'm talking about here? There are two things, really. God's power is for me, for the situations outside of me. To keep me safe. To provide for my physical needs. To bless my family. God's power is available for me for the situations outside. But I think even more remarkably, God's power is directed towards me for the situations inside of me. I think it's more remarkable that he applies his power to me to create in me trust and forgiveness and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, etc. Those things are so not natural for me, for all of us in our fallen states. But God applies his power to us to work those things in us, and that is remarkable. Realizing the capabilities of this power means that you can always fight sin. You can always say yes to the scripture. There is never a situation where you can say, the Bible says this, I can't do that. That's way too hard. The Bible says that, I, I can't forgive. The Bible says this, there's no way I can give that much. That's not the case. That need never be. God has immense power applied to you so that you can say yes to him and respond to him. Trust that. And how that works out, how we go about trusting and and living in that power, that's, that's a larger discussion. But it's there, and it's real, and it's for us. And we need to see it. 
More could be said about that, I'm sure. More could be said about all of these things. But the second question here in the middle, we're asking, what do we need to see? And what the text says we need to see is we need to see God and the hope of his calling, God and how he views his inheritance, and God and his great power. That's what we need to see. We want to walk in a worthy manner. And we now turn to the third part of this connection. We have to pray so that we can see, first part. We've seen some of what we need to know when we have those enlightened eyes. That's the second part. And now we get to the bottom of the matter and we ask, does all this happen just so that I'll have more intellectual knowledge? Does he want me to just see things so that I'll see and know stuff? Is that what he wants? Obviously not. This whole letter is moving us towards worthy walking, and somehow this illumining must further the walking. Somehow. But the question is how? How does seeing connect to walking? I've already been spilling over into that a little bit when I was talking about the hope and fighting fire with fire, or trusting God's promises by seeing his power. We've already been kind of spilling into this third section here, but let's make it explicit. You know, logically, it must be. He's going towards four, five, chapters 4, 5, and 6 where he's going to talk about walking. Logically, this must connect somehow. It's not one massive non sequitur. But more than just logic, the phrase in verse 18 gives us a hint that we need to look for something. That phrase there, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, there are two verbal elements there, the enlightened part and the knowing part. And they both occur in a certain tense that gives us a hint. It's talking about a completed action that has a continuing effect. Both of them are. It's like this. You see something and it matters. It doesn't mean that you'll you'll never see it again or you'll never see it in a different way or more thoroughly. After all, Paul does continually pray for this on and on. We need to keep seeing it. But what it does, but what it means is that you see something and it has an effect. To, to mix metaphors here, this kind of seeing that Paul's talking about is not the kind of seeing that goes in one ear and out the other. It goes in and then it matters. It has an effect. And if it doesn't have an ongoing effect, then you didn't see it. And you don't know it. There's a lot of stuff we've seen, but we don't really know. Seeing really seeing, has an abiding effect. The grammar tells us that. And if we think for just a minute, I think the connection here between seeing and walking becomes pretty clear. If you see, like Paul's talking about, you know these things, then what has happened in you is that the Holy Spirit has been given to you to help you see. We saw that already. And he has by grace worked in your heart an abiding, continuing effect. You've been changed, actually, just a little bit. Your thinking has been reshaped and reoriented. Your values have been slightly altered. How you decide what is important, your goals, your likes, your dislikes, your loves, your affections, your attitude, your outlook, these things have been just a little bit changed, in some way altered when you see him and his hope and his inheritance and his power been a little bit transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. Incidentally, also Ephesians 4, 23. 
This whole thing's all connected together here. You are a little different. You've been renewed in your mind. You see. And the you that has a slightly renewed mind is now a different you that walks differently. Seeing connects to walking. Here's, here's the answer to the question. Seeing connects to walking, to acting, to behaving, because seeing, this kind of seeing, changes you. It makes you different. What has a hold of your insides? What looms large in front of you as you walk through life? What grips your mind and your heart? What grips your affections and your desires? What grips you on the inside dictates to you your outside. You will follow what you love. You will follow what you see. That's why he's praying for you to see on the inside with an abiding effect. Let me close by showing you this reality in someone else. Santoso is a farmer and a pastor of a small village church in Indonesia. The October issue of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine tells the story. If you want to read more about that, see me later. I'll recount the story for you. Santoso was attacked on his way home from sharing Christ with Muslims on the farms and in the city of Poso, Indonesia. He and a friend, both on their motorbikes, were hit with a machete. A machete is like a big, thick knife or like a small sword. They were hit with a machete wielded by a Muslim who jumped out from a bush. His friend's fingers were cut off. The attacker then missed Santoso's throat, cutting him across the face. He ran to a village and holding his face, and he lived. Voice of the Martyrs medical staff, the article continues, Voice of the Martyrs medical staff has flown into Java twice for treatment. He lost ten teeth. As we go to press with this article, Santoso is getting new teeth implants. His wife and eight-year-old son pray for him as their ministry continues. Before going into his latest surgery, he told us with his tongue now healed, there's a picture of him, he must have had his mouth open when he was hit, because there's a picture of him with his tongue hanging out and a scar that goes from here to here right across his tongue. He told us with his healed tongue, listen to this, I read Ephesians 1.19, which promised God's great power to us who believe. God sends me power so I can bear the suffering. We rejoice that one Muslim has come to Christ. Santoso sees. He reads that same verse in his Bible and he sees it. And he has an abiding effect. His family prays for him as their ministry continues. He doesn't just shut up, shop, and leave. That's a dangerous district, isn't it? But he stays and his ministry continues. He rejoices. God gives him power to bear his suffering. And he doesn't become bitter or angry at the people who attack him. He rejoices that a Muslim has come to faith. That is not natural. That's the effect of God enlightening a man's eyes and letting him see and changing him. And that can happen in you too. It's the same God. It's the same power. It's the same hope. The same inheritance. 
It can happen in you. So pray, pray, pray that you would see so that you can walk like this. Whether it be in that difficult of a situation or something much more benign at home, having trouble dealing with your kids. We need to see so that we can walk. And God wants to answer those prayers. Pray like that. Pray for yourself, for your family, for your church family, for your pastor. Pray that we would see so we can walk. Let me pray. God, we stand in great need of you to open the eyes of our hearts. By grace, I pray that you would do that. Send the Spirit and power on us to let us see. Let us see with an abiding effect, something that changes how we live and walk. God, show us yourself, the hope of the calling, the value of your inheritance and your great power towards us. We pray that Christ would be glorified by the walking that comes thereafter. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.